When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode, I want to specifically address the question posted by Campbell. We discussed it briefly in the last episode, but I felt it was really necessary to dedicate a whole episode to this and it was about practice ownership. So it's venturing into the business side of earning a practice and Campbell specifically mentioned about an allied health practice or a medical practice. Now, just a disclosure, I'm not a practice owner. I am a doctor. I basically work in uh, public health at the moment uh, and practice ownership, I sort of did all the sums uh, early in my career and it just wasn't for me. I'm way too lazy for that because practice ownership can be quite complex and takes a fair bit of work. Now, later on in this episode, I also answer a question from Joe who wanted to know about contract renegotiation, some of the things to look out for or some of the basic things to watch out for when you're reviewing your contract. That question was specifically in relation to general practice, but I guess the same concepts may apply in other specialties and also in allied health as well. We can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. If you're anything like me, you will understand that us medical professionals often have unique financial affairs from taxation minimization requirements, multiple entities for accounting or asset protection for the extra risk we take on. Altus Financial understands these issues and more. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps or you're after advice about buying into a practice, Altus Financial is for medical professionals who want to feel good about their finances. To speak with Altus Financial about your situation, click the link in the show notes or head to altusfinancial.com.au forward slash M3M. Let's get started. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via the Facebook page. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, Campbell asks, I'm interested to know what are some of the things to look out for when being a practice owner, including the risks of equity purchase when it comes to allied health practices? Um, now, it's a really good question, Campbell. And just a disclosure again, I'm a doctor, so don't have any direct understanding of allied health practices, but I suspect it's very similar to most medical practices, particularly general practitioners. Uh, and I'm also not a practice owner because I'm just too lazy for that, but I do know a bit about practice ownership as it's related to the field of medicine. And I do speak to a lot of doctors um, who own practices. I've got several colleagues that own practices um, that are fairly successful. Um, some of them didn't have much success because they thought they were good practice owners um, and actually didn't do well. So you've got to be a little bit careful about owning practices just because you're a good doctor or physiotherapist or allied health professional doesn't mean you're going to be a good business person. I think that's probably the biggest take-home message from this episode. Basically, in the field of medicine, and I'll sort of elaborate on that because that's my area of expertise, but I suspect it's very, very similar to allied health as well. 
There's a practice owner or a group of owners and they hire independent contractors to see patients. Now, I know in Adard Health that might not be the case. Sometimes they own, uh, they sort of hire uh, employees to do it, uh, particularly the big physio practices. And usually there's a practice manager. There's reception staff and there's practice nurses. Now, in Allied Health, again, I suspect you don't need to practice nurses for the majority of your practices. Depends on the type of Allied Health, um, of course. So if you're a diabetic educator, then, of course, you may need you know, registered nurses as part of your practice. If you're a nurse practitioner, you may need practice nurses as part of your practice. And basically, the billings are generated. Now, the main difference between an Allied Health practice and maybe a specialist practice versus a general practice, is that in general practice, you can't dip into private health insurance. So your private health insurance fees, you know, can't be dipped into for your general practitioner fees. But in allied health, particularly for physiotherapy or OT, um, myotherapies, et cetera, you may be able to dip into that. So that's a point of differentiation. And the other difference is um, for specialist medical practices like orthopedics or surgical or physician or nephrology, whatever it is, you need a referral. You need a referral from your GP. But for GPs or allied health practices, mostly you don't need a referral from someone else. You just can refer yourself, mostly. Um, now, for care plans and stuff, you do need referrals. But for you know to go see a physio for a bung knee, Generally speaking, you can just walk up, make an appointment and see the physio without a medical referral. So that's a point of differentiation. And then basically part of the billings goes to the practitioner um, and part of it goes to the practice. And whatever is left over post all of the costs is the profits, which goes to the owners and split ownership, etc. Now, if you're an employee in an allied health practice, of course, you don't get any of those profits because you're just an employee. So we're really, really talking about practice ownership in the setting of independent contractors, which is probably the most common medical practice setting. Um, and dare I say, it might be also very common at allied health, depending on the size of the allied health practice. I think the larger practices tend to just have employees and a lot of the physios and allied health practitioners just prefer employee relationships because of job security and stability of income. Now, to answer the question, we really need to look at the aspects of buying a practice, whether it be allied health or medical. So let's take a deeper dive. Again, this is looking at just small practices, not really multi-corporations, etc. Okay, we're not looking at massive, massive corporations uh, buying practices. We're just looking at, you know, let's say you're an allied health practitioner or a GP that wants to buy into a practice. What are some of the things to look out for? These are sort of broad principles that you need to think about. Now, Why do you want to buy into a practice or even own a practice? What's the whole point of it? Well, the whole point of it is the rate of return on investment is usually high. Now, usually I'll sort of say, okay, if you invest in an index fund, your rate of return of investment is probably going to be about 8% over about 30, 40 years time. Over the last sort of 30 years or so, the Australian stock market's done about sort of 9 to 10%, which is significant. The US stock market's done about 11%, which is even better. So the rate of return on a practice ownership, you've got to benchmark it against what you can get outside of that. So, for example, if you borrow $200,000 to start a practice, which generates a profit of about $30,000 per year, that's a rate of return of 15% per annum, less any cost, of course, associated with the borrowing. So, it's difficult to get that sort of return in any other major forms of investment on a consistent basis, right? You're not going to get 15% per annum investing in the stock market or even investing in the property market over the long term. Maybe, maybe not. But investing in a business, you're probably going to be you know, more successful in getting that over the long term. Now, one of the things that I did recently with my elder daughter is I asked her to have a look at the Forbes richest list 
and have a look at the top five or the top 10 richest people in the world. And I wanted her to have a look at some of the patterns of wealth. And very quickly, she realized that people that are the richest in the world are not employees. They're actually business owners um, and they're actually investors. And that's one of the things she pointed out to me. She said, oh, dad, I've noticed that the top 10 people in the world that are the richest are not actually working for money. They've got money kind of working for them. And that's really, really important. And that's probably why one of the biggest reasons you want to be owning a business like a medical practice. And I'm not saying if you own a medical practice or allied health practice, you're going to be the richest person in the world, but it gives you a bit of a sense that the rate of return on your money is going to be higher than investing it outside of that area. Now, If you did that over many decades, you know, borrow $200,000 and get a 15% per annum return, you can see how the compounding effect can be absolutely phenomenal and very, very powerful. Here's my biggest advice here. Make sure you utilize your profits to reinvest some of it into the business, but make sure you pay yourself. Make sure you still look after your personal finances such that you can achieve financial independence as quickly as possible. One of the biggest mistakes that you can do when owning a business and a successful business is if you reinvest everything back into the business and don't really think about yourself and you just keep doing this, although it sounds great to do this, it's fantastic that you're investing and growing your business. This essentially means you're putting all your eggs into one basket. And then basically over a period of time, you have to rely on selling that practice in your retirement, which can be quite tricky. Because managing a practice in your retirement as you get older is not an easy task. So again, it's not like the same as, you know, creating a company that sells cars or creating a bank or whatever it is, because it's relatively easier to sell those types of businesses compared to a medical practice where you kind of actually physically have to be on the ground or remotely trying to manage this. There's a fair bit of sweat equity in terms of managing medical practices or allied health practices. Then you've got to think about, okay, when buying a practice, what are some of the things you need to think about or look at? Number one is you've got to think about what makes a good practice and it's location, location, location. Very similar to buying an investment property or any property. Now, ideally, it should be located in a prime real estate position, a busy shopping district, a great car parking access, good pedestrian traffic access, which means constant supply of patients. Now, car parking when opening a medical practice, and I suspect it's the same for allied health practices, is actually quite difficult because there are some regulations in terms of how much car parking you need to have, you know, per doctor or allied health practitioner on site. But if you have it in a busy shopping district, then you can use the communal shopping car park potentially as part of your um, application to the council so that you can get your businesses registered and say, look, this is the amount of car park we have and we have enough car park. So therefore, you don't need to end up by a significant amount of land to allow for that car park based on the number of practitioners you may have. Now, some of these rules may have changed over time. So this episode is recorded in 2022 in April. Now, if you're in the allied health industry, Uh, You may want to co-locate your business, you know, think about CBD districts or even industrial locations, given the high occupational related incidents you may wish to see or have seen. You know, occupational incidents and consults associated with them, they pay quite well. But when it comes to a lot of paperwork, because you need to do a lot of work cover related injuries. Number three is charge more. A good practice charges more money. 
that's medical or allied health. Now, surprisingly, charging more, or a gap fee as it's called, rarely results in reduction in patient numbers long term. There's always a reversion to the mean. People just kind of adjust to it. People sort of accustomed to it. And that becomes the norm. Healthcare is not the same as buying a shopping product where prices matter a lot. Sure, some patients will prefer bulk billing, but when you offer a price signal, you'll start to filter out patients who don't really want to be there. And you find that a lot in general practice, that universally bulk bill. Patients just come in for random stuff, often for little stuff, often not really required to see a doctor. And it can be quite frustrating. So having a price signal, whether it be a medical practice or allied health practice, over time, you're not going to be losing much money at all. Number four is the aesthetics of the practice is really important. Now, I've visited allied health practices which are clean, well-kept, great paintings on the walls, and some even provide, you know, free uh, lattes and free cappuccinos, and the whole place simply looks spectacular. And when something looks good, it entices patients. It makes patients happy. It's a real phenomenon. It has a real positive mental impact on the patient. So don't be afraid to spend money to improve the aesthetics of your practice. Think about competition. Compete less. That means make sure you do your research on nearby competition. Now, if you're rural, it's a bit easier as there is less competition overall for allied health and medical practices, but it's also less fashionable areas um, and therefore less competition, which means lower costs like rental agreements and lease agreements. But the flip side is attracting staff can be difficult. One of my pet peeves about medical practices, and I think it's the same for allied health, is that as a doctor, for me to go to a rural area to work, I'm going to get paid reasonably the same amount of money in terms of a per hour basis than working in metro areas. And this is certainly true for public health. And you've got to ask the question, why would I travel two hours to a rural area, particularly if I'm living in Melbourne, to earn exactly the same income per unit time as opposed to working in the metro area? And that really, really is frustrating. So I think generally, if you're an allied health practitioner or a GP or a medical practitioner working in the country, then I think Medicare rebates and private health insurance rebates have to be raised. The patient's rebate has to be raised because otherwise the incentive is limited unless you actually want to move there or you actually live there. Let's assume in the question you wanted to buy into an established practice. What are some of the advantages associated with buying into a practice? Number one is usually there's immediate access to patients, so it can be busy from day one. Number two is there's no setup costs or setup time. Number three is the team members associated with the practice are already there. And there's no need to recruit brand new staff, which means less cost of training them. Number four is the assets, they're already there. Number five is marketing is a cost, but it's at a reduced cost because the campaign relies on established word of mouth and established reputation. But there's also considerable disadvantages. Number one is reputation can take a hit or may not be up to scratch. Make sure you Google your practice and also all the staff working there before buying into it. Now, I recommend you Google individually the owner and every single staff member and every single practitioner. You learn a lot by Googling. Number two is the work habits and systems of staff may not be something you like because they've got an established culture. So changing culture, in my experience, is very, very hard once established. I used to work in a practice which was just so inefficient, it's incredible. 
and I just got frustrated because even simple things took too long. So what sort of things do you need to look out for when buying into a practice? Now, you've got to ask the question, what are you actually buying? What assets are actually included? So let's talk about practice goodwill. A goodwill is basically things like patient lists, records, repeat business, reputation, established relationships with patients and business partners and referral partners over the years. Then you've got to think about supplies and supply chains, plant and equipment. You need to get a detailed schedule of all the plants and equipment, which are now part owner of. What is actually being bought as to what is actually being leased? So for example, if your practice leases computers at a cost of $20,000 for five years, and you're buying into the practice in year two, well, why do you need to pay for year one? That cost needs to be deducted from the cost of buying into a practice. The second thing is, you gotta look at staff contracts and provisions. When you buy into the practice, you take over any provision of entitlements to staff such as sick leave, annual leave, and long service leave. Now, these are for receptionists and practice nurses and employees that work in the practice. So you need to adjust the purchase price of the practice accounting for this. For example, if someone in the practice is in their 13th year, well, in their 15th year, they may be eligible for long service leave. So you need to take that into account when establishing a price you're willing to pay for the practice because ultimately when you own the practice, you are now partly responsible for paying them the long service leave. They don't care if they have new ownership, they're still entitled to that. And that's fair work. And how do you negotiate? I sort of recommend always engaging a professional to help you with this. An accountant or a lawyer who specialises in practice ownership is really helpful. Never do it alone. I'm astounded by the number of doctors and I guess some allied health professionals as well who don't engage in specialists to negotiate a price. It's a bit like having a buyer's agent when buying your first home. It's especially useful if it's your first time. Now, if you're a seasoned practice owner or investment property expert, then maybe you can skip this step. But I think getting a professional to go through it initially is time well spent and money well spent. You've got to think about how you're going to finance your equity purchase into this practice. How are you going to pay for this? Think about how you want to pay for this. You're going to take out a business loan, which is usually a deductible cost, which is good. Do you want to spend your own money? And how are you going to negotiate a good interest rates, etc.? So that's a separate aspect to practice ownership or buying into a practice. You've got to check council zoning permission. This sounds really, really lame, but it's really important. Just because there's an established practice you're considering buying into doesn't mean it's illegal according to council zoning. In fact, doctors have been burned buying into practices, then finding out the solo GP who was running it didn't even check with council and shouldn't have been operating a medical business in that council zone. It's an absolute disaster. So check, check, and check again. How many times have you seen, particularly, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, a doctor may be practicing attached to their home. It was actually relatively common back in the day. And they may not have actually, you know, sought council permissions to do that. So you've got to be really, really careful. And if they want to sell their practice associated with their home, well, you've got to do your due diligence. Now, you don't see very much of that nowadays. If the zoning does not check out, walk away. And where possible, do not buy shares in an existing company. When you do this, you also are buying into existing debts. This means on how much trust you have with your existing practice owner. 
To avoid all of this, you can just transfer all assets from old shares to new issuance of shares, and it's just a nuance you need to research about, particularly if you're buying the entire practice. Think about restraint of trade clause. With established practices, this is already a thing in medicine. I'm not really sure about allied health services, but I suspect it's very similar. If there is no restraint of trade clause, then what's stopping your business partner to open another practice with a view to running that more efficiently and effectively and then letting go of their current ownership given it's only a partial ownership anyway, whereas their new practice is now 100% ownership? Now, healthcare is meant to be noble. When it comes to money, nothing is noble. So just be careful. Think about restraint of trade clause. Now, how do you want to put in restraints of trade? Now, what type of activity are you restraining? What is the geographical area you are restraining? Usually it's three to five kilometre radius, which is generally appropriate. And the time period the restraint is actually active. You can't, restraint of trade can't be forever. It has to be usually one or three years. That's a normal period of time. Make sure any restraint of trade clause is reviewed by a qualified lawyer, as sometimes they're actually not enforceable. Now, you want to think about whether you own the building or you don't own the building. When you buy into a practice, is the building included or just the practice is included? Now, if the building is not included, is it because it's a leased building and it's not owned or is it because the owner just just doesn't want to give you part ownership? Now, if it's leased, you need to do your due diligence to ensure the lease is renewed and doesn't expire randomly. This has actually happened to someone that contacted me where they bought into a practice and then all of a sudden found the lease expired. And of course, the person that owns the building didn't want to lease it back to the medical practice anymore. Disaster. Check the lease carefully. Warranties and guarantees. Now, what does that mean? If you're buying into a practice, the other owners or the vendor need to agree to provide a warranty for the purchase. Now, basically, a warranty states that the vendor and the owners have disclosed all the relevant matters to the purchase of the sale. If they don't do this, red flag, walk away. It means they may be potentially hiding something under the carpets, so to speak. Now, just because you're a great clinician doesn't mean you're a great business operator. This is a common mistake many healthcare workers make. Know your strengths and grow your strengths and work on your weaknesses. If you don't know, then ask, learn, and don't rush into making decisions to buying a practice. It can make or break you long-term financially. Very similar to buying things that you don't understand, like property or shares or Bitcoin or whatever it is that you don't understand. Now, this thing about goodwill is how much is it actually worth? Now, there's no real figure, but sometimes it's about four to six times EBITDA, which is basically earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortization. I think I pronounced that last bit correctly, amortization. And that's for medical practices. And sometimes goodwill is actually worthless. Basically, attracting staff is a major issue. Lifestyle choices, practice ownerships condemn you to that place and you can't move readily if you want to make a lifestyle choice. And I'm constantly coming across doctors, especially running practice ownership, as it's a lot of work, but very little gain in some respects. Now, here are some factors to consider when valuing goodwill. When you're looking at a practice, how do you value the goodwill? You look at the support staff. You look at the practice systems and efficiencies. You look at the premises. Is it modern? Is it old? You look at the workforce. Is it stable or unstable? Is there a turnover? Now, on LinkedIn, which I am part of, and you can follow me on that, I constantly see ads for practices looking for staff. And sometimes it's the same practice that's been looking for staff all the time. To me, that tells me 
that maybe the turnover in that practice is just too high. Now, the market niche factors. Now, if you're allied health and if you only provide a specific service, for example, subspecialised in physiotherapy for traumatic shoulder injuries or sports physiotherapy, you've got to look into that when valuing goodwill. You've got to look into established relationships with other health practitioners and health professionals. This is very relevant for general practice. When a GP works in a practice, the first thing that I probably want to ask is, hey, do you have existing referral systems in this area? So if I have a paediatric patient with a developmental hip dysplasia or a concern about it, who do I refer to? Because I don't know of any paediatric orthopedic people that specialise in that around this area. Is there someone that you refer to? So establishing relationships with other health professionals is really important. And if you're working in a practice, that's the first question I'd ask. And if you're buying into a practice, that's also the first question I'd ask, because that's really important. Because if they've got established referral pathways, it just makes your life a lot easier. And think about the specialist equipment, which may create a barrier to entry. Now, the other thing you want to consider is how you're going to pay your non-owner practitioners. This is for independent contractors. If you're going to pay them as an employee, it's pretty straightforward. Just, you know, set up a pay as you account and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. But if it's going to be an independent practitioner, this is a point of contention. There's a lot of activity on this subject. Here is how it normally used to work. The practitioner generates all the billings by seeing patients. The practice claims the billings, stores it in a trust account, and fortnightly or monthly take out a set percentage as negotiated with the clinician and transfer the money to the clinician's bank account, GSD, blah, 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 included. Now, the problem is sometimes this is viewed as if the practice is paying the clinician. And it generates a potential employee-employer relationship. But most clinicians doctors, allied health practitioners may not be employees, which makes this a huge problem. The practice owner then gets a big fat bill for payroll taxes. And if the clinician really wants to pursue this, they can pursue the owner for superannuation, sick leave and all the entitlements which haven't been provided. Now, I know in some allied health practices, as I've expressed before, the patient, oh sorry, not the patient, the practitioner is simply an employee, which eliminates the risk for both parties. But in the medical field, a lot of practices are being targeted by the state revenue office and the ATO to pay off the leftover dues because most medical doctors that work in a practice are not employees, they're independent contractors because the government always wants its share of the taxes. In fact, if you Google it, there's been a fair number of uh, prominent cases where GP practices have had to pay up about you know, $800,000 to a $1 million of unpaid payroll taxes because of the way that they've structured their independent contractor agreements. You've got to be very, very careful about that. Which comes on to the next point, how do you actually structure your ownership into the practice? Now, it's a very complex area, so always seek legal and accountant advice who specialise in these areas. You need to have a co-ownership agreement and there are a number of things which needs to be stated, such as profit share arrangements, decision-making processes, including what's called tiebreaker rules. That is when you break ties in the agreement, what are the rules? Expulsion clauses for inappropriate behaviour. Believe it or not, healthcare workers are not immune to inappropriate behaviour. Things like sexual harassment, assaults, etc. You need to specify the hours you need to spend in the practice as a working clinician or a non-working clinician. You need to have restrictive covenants or leaving the practice or agreements. What are the mediation processes? What are the capital expenditure provisions? Is it equal share of expenses? What about owners' meetings? What about minute keeping and decision-making processes, etc., etc.? 
Now, the way you wish to structure your ownership can be either an associate, a partnership, a unit trust or hybrid trust or company. Now, in terms of that, it's way beyond the scope of this episode, so I'm not actually going into that. But it's something you need to think about when purchasing equity into a share of a medical practice or allied health practice. Now, some people say practice ownership is like marriage. Is it? Marriage is an emotional decision. Practice ownership is not an emotional decision. Money doesn't have emotions. People do. Hold your emotions and focus on the business bottom line. Now, it's just like working. It's not until the end do us apart. It's more like until something better comes along. Now, that's what practice ownership is all about. Now, just a word on partnerships. I don't like them and here's why. You are tied at the hips. You are equally responsible for each other's actions and you need to put your partner's interest ahead of yours and vice versa. Each partner is responsible for all of the other partners. And that's what makes me a little bit nervous. This means a patient who complains about a clinician who's a partner in the business may take action against any or all of the partners. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like a relationship I want to be in. Now, what about profit sharing? You need to think about that in terms of buying into a practice or, you know, having ownership. Think about how you're going to share profits in your practice. Now, initially, you're probably not going to make much profit, but over time you will, and hopefully you will, and, I, you know, hopefully make a lot of profit, make a lot of money, and that's great. How are you going to share that profit in your practice? Now, it's not always equally divided. Remember, you are entering an established practice, particularly if you are entering an established practice, and you're likely going to be part owner. The primary owner who started the practice has put a lot of their blood and sweat and tears into the business. So why should they share the profit equally with you? That's a legitimate question that you need to come up with an answer to. And that's all part of the negotiation. There are two main types of profit sharing agreements. Number one is equal profit. This means profits are shared equally, irrespective of who does the bulk of the billings or work. Number two is variable profit sharing. This means profits are shared based on the percentage billings contributions to total billings. To highlight this concept, let's use an example. I'm going to use a medical example as I'm familiar with this. Amy is a GP who's a co-owner of Clinic A. Rob is the other GP who co-owns with Amy. The total billings last year was about a million dollars. Amy billed $600,000, Rob billed $400,000, and the total cost of running the practice was $500,000. Therefore, the total profit was half a million dollars. Now, these numbers are just random figures. I'm not saying all GPs make half a million dollars in money. I've just done this to highlight the concept. If you had an equal profit sharing agreement, then Amy and Rob will both get a quarter of a million dollars of profit, $250,000. Of course, taxes will need to be paid on that, depending on the structure of their partnership and business. The taxes can either be paid up front of the profit or at the individual level or at the beneficiary level or at the company level. That depends on the structure of the business. But essentially, Amy and Rob both walk away with equal profit sharing agreements of a quarter of a million dollars. Now, suppose they had a variable profit sharing agreement. The most common way this is done is because Amy contributed 60% of the total billings and Rob contributed 40% of the total billings, the total profits being half a million dollars, Amy gets 60% of that, which is $300,000, and Rob gets only 40% of that, which is $200,000. Now, an important note here is profits can be manipulated. So make sure you assess the numbers well and ensure no hidden secrets in the balance sheet. You may wish to have a good accountant even audited to do this for you. And usually I'd probably have a look at the last sort of three to five years 
of business figures because, you know, people can manipulate profits. So when they're trying to get equity partnership, they may actually have greater profits because they just haven't spent much money on the practice. Whereas they might have spent all their money in the last sort of, you know, three years ago. So you've got to be very, very careful about analyzing the numbers. If you're not very good at it, get an auditor or an accountant to do this for you. It's money well spent, trust me. Now, here are some more points to consider in this particular example of Amy and Rob. Number one is, what if Amy was a skin cancer GP? Therefore, she uses a lot of instruments. So the costs are a little bit high for her. Why does Rob have to share the cost equally? Number two is, what happens about income generated from working late or weekends? This is typically higher, which could have contributed to Amy's high billings. Did Rob actually refuse to do weekends or after hours, or was he not given the opportunity to make more money? Number three is, what about billings generated outside of the clinic? This is less common for allied health workers unless you're doing a lot of home visits. But for example, for a GP who visits a nursing home, doesn't use any of the clinical facilities in the actual practice or offers space for the duration of the visits, which can be whole day. So why should that GP pay the same percentage as another GP and using more resources of the clinic? Fair question. Maybe Rob worked less sessions compared to Amy, so comparatively has a higher income per unit time or billings per unit time. So why should Rob share the cost equally? These are just some of the nuances of running a profit-sharing practice that need to be discussed and dealt with in writing. Lastly, how about shielding yourself behind a company? For example, if you buy into a practice, you can buy into using a company structure into the practice rather than buying into it yourself. Will that work? Now, it actually can be very useful, but it only shields the owner of the bad work of the non-owners. It doesn't protect the owner if they screwed up themselves in the first place. To highlight this point, let's use an example. Amy is a physiotherapist and decides to buy into a physiotherapy practice. There are three other owners. Amy will be the fourth owner. Each owner has her own company, which owns an interest in the partnership comprising of the physiotherapy practice. Suppose one of the owners does something dodgy, which results in a legal action. The legal action will be against that owner's company, which in turn has an interest in the partnership. That partnership is connected to the other owners via their own companies. This is called joint and several liability. So speak to a lawyer or research about this concept as well. But the clinician themselves are somewhat protected. That is, the clinicians are not personal partners. So normally the joint action can't involve the individual clinician. Now, to qualify this, it still involves a lot of headache for the clinician because the company is involved in a legal action. So it's a major pain in the ass, but you get the idea of adding a layer of protection for the individual. Ultimately, you don't want to lose your home owning a practice due to some dodgy thing your business partner did. That's the fundamental concept you need to understand. And I hope this clarifies some of the things to look out for in buying equity into a business, whether it be allied health practice or just any medical practice, really. Some of these concepts can be utilized in buying into other sort of businesses as well. Do your due diligence because that's really, really important. Now, let's take a quick ad break. And on the other side, we address the question from Joe, who is a GP, who is asking about things considering contract negotiation. So be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. I had a question from Joe, who's a GP. And Joe wanted to find out what sort of things you should look out for when renewing your contract with a medical practice. That's a really good question. So let's discuss this in a bit more detail. And I'll focus on the concept of contract clauses you should look out for for all of the GPs, not just renewals of contracts. Now, here are my tips for GP contracts. So this actually may be relevant to other professions as well, especially sole trader healthcare workers. So if you're not a GP, but you're a sole trader in the health industry, you may want to listen up when it comes to your contract. Number one is you've got to figure out what sort of entity you are. Are you a sole trader? Are you a company? Just a word of caution, be very careful working as an independent contractor but establishing a company to earn an income and paying company taxes. There is something called PSI, which is personal services income. Now, I've covered this extensively in episode 62, so please listen to it. It's an eye-opener and a common mistake a lot of GPs especially make and sole trading health practitioners as well. So basically, you can't just create a company if you're going to be using your labour to create an income. Number two is, if you're working for a practice, you need to specify the location of the practice in the contract. Sounds pretty obvious, but this is relevant, especially if your practice owner has other sites. Now, it's not uncommon in corporate general practice. There are multiple practice locations, and there may be an expectation to be able to cover roster gaps in other sites. This is not uncommon in some public hospital contracts as well, where a hospital may expect the doctor or a nurse or any practitioner to work across multiple sites. And I'll be very specific and be very meticulous about this. Number three is you've got to get clarification about what the sessional expectations are. In general practice, one session is usually about four hours. There's usually a 30 to 60 minute lunch break, which often gets encroached on due to non-billable work, etc., like results, patient phone calls or paperwork, etc., Full-time is usually considered eight sessions per week, so four full days. And you've got to work out whether weekend work is expected. Is it a one-in-four roster? Is on-call expected? Do you serve as a hospital, which is very common in rural locations? What's the minimum hours? Is there an expectation and important to have set out? For example, if you do an additional session, will you get paid more for that, especially if covering a roster deficit, or is it just going to be the same percentage billings? Number four is, how long is a contract worth? What's the time frame? How long is it valid for? Now, typically in general practice, it's about three to five years. Now, if it's just one year, I think it's too short. It doesn't give you enough time to settle in. So when someone's giving you one year general practice contract and you haven't asked for it, the question is why? Do they have plans to sell the practice? 
Do they have plans to dissolve the practice? Are they not confident in running the practice for more than a year? These are all things you need to look out for. Number five is workloads. Some practices sneakily stipulate that you need to see four patients per hour. So check for such clauses. Personally and ideally, there should be no minimum patient number requirements because you're an independent sole contractor. Ultimately, practice medicine with quality in mind and not quantity and charge appropriately. Number six is billing practices. Now, you need to negotiate a good percentage, but a lot of GPs get this wrong and focus on the percentage too much. There's no point keeping 70% of billings if the clinic is not busy. 70% of small number is still a small number. Use the concept. Do you want a smaller bite out of a watermelon? Or do you want a large bite out of a grape? Make it competitive. Sometimes there are starting rates and minimum guarantees. Now, I think it's essential to have minimum guarantees for about three to six months. And I think as a minimum, you probably should be getting paid $150 to $200 per hour because you'll be less busy in the first six months when you find your feet in a new practice. And this is not essential when renegotiating the contract because hopefully you've got established patients, but it is very essential when you're going into a new practice. And if you've been in the clinic for a while, then you might want to negotiate a higher percentage. Now, in terms of billing practices, the other thing is you need to ask the practice, are they universally bulk billing? Which personally, I'm not a great fan of. I don't like this universal bulk billing concept because it doesn't provide a price signal to patients. Most practices should have a mixed billing policy or a private billing policy. And that includes allied health as well. There's no reason why allied health practitioners need to bulk bill. Now, of course, there are some situations you may wish to consider bulk billing, such as children, um, and people from a lower socioeconomic background or people that have a pension card or healthcare card or low-income earners. And there are established procedures for this in most clinics. But, you know, if you're working and you're coming to see a doctor or allied health practitioner, you've got a pretty good income and it's a pretty good area, then the expectation, I think, is that you need to pay for that service because the physio or the uh, OT or the doctor that's providing you for the service have taken a lot of years to perfect their art So you're paying them for that service. Just like you wouldn't ask your carpenter or your plumber to bulk bill you. Now, in terms of uh, pro tip for a practice owner, the key to retaining good doctors is you've got to pay them well, but also provide them some ownership for them. That doesn't mean practice ownership. They don't need to be owning a part of your clinic. It just means giving them a portfolio to address within the clinic and then paying them appropriately for it. There's nothing worse than working in a clinic without any career progression. Now, some GPs may not be into this, but a lot of them are, particularly younger ones. At this stage, I want to talk about a colleague's experience recently. The colleague had three practices, which was, you know, thriving, and they were struggling to keep up with each of the clinic's complaints processes, orderings, and practice manager meetings, etc. So they rang me for advice on how to approach solving this issue. I introduced them to the concept of clinical lead. Now, clinical lead just means that a doctor is primarily responsible for small issues arising in that clinic, and they report to my colleague who owns all of the practices. This means my colleague can focus on bigger pictures of expanding the clinic empire rather than focusing on nitty-gritties. It is vital the college stays in touch with the clinical lead to ensure things are okay and also pick up the right person for the clinical lead job. Now, how does a clinical lead get paid then? Can be whatever structure they want. 
can be a flat rate of maybe six hours per week, admin time to do this, maybe flexibility of work from home for those six hours, for example, or perhaps a higher percentage of their overall billings, maybe rather than 65, maybe 70 or 75% of their billings. Whatever the doctor prefers, you've got to have that discussion and honest negotiation with your clinical lead, pay them properly, involve the doctors, and they'll be much happier. So the colleague rang me back about a week after and offered a clinical lead position to an existing excellent doctor who had no complaints, who were fantastic and excellent clinician, and who had the soir for administrative duties, and they were willing to do the work for an extra percentage on the usual billings. So it was a very simple concept, which involves a lot of problems. And so it doesn't involve a lot of problems, but solves a lot of problems and takes the time away from a colleague who has more important things to do. As a clinic owner, you can't be too greedy and try to do everything yourself. Otherwise, you're going to have a really bad reputation. I talk to a lot of GPs. And yes, there are a lot of clinic owners who are really nice, who are approachable and are fair. But there's plenty who are just plain greedy which is always going to bite them in the ass. And I speak to a lot of doctors who um, contact me anonymously and say some of the problems they're having with their practice owners. And some of them are repeat offenders. Some of the practice owners are repeat offenders. And sometimes I speak to a lot of colleagues and, and doctors who say, you know what, the practice they work in, the clinic owner, the practice manager is fantastic. The systems and effectiveness and the efficiency of the process is awesome. And as a result, they're very happy with their particular practice. So it goes both ways. Now, in terms of billing practices, uh, I talked about universal bulk billing and mixed billing. Now, what if you do primarily satellite clinics, right? What if you just go to nursing homes, for example, and only use the clinic for provider numbers or billing purposes, then you're well within your rights to negotiate a higher percentage. Your room is not being used during those sessions in the clinic by you. So you're outside in the clinic working in the nursing home and utilizing all of the facilities of the nursing home. And essentially the GP clinic staff are purely doing your paperwork and billings, etc. So you should be able to negotiate a higher percentage of billings. Be fair, don't be too greedy. And it's not unusual for GPs working in nursing homes getting about 80 to 85% of those billings. Better yet, establish a private relationship with a nursing home yourself, well away from your clinic, and keep 100% of the billings. Keep more of what you make. Just be careful not to breach any contract clauses. Now, I've actually advised a couple of GPs more recently, actually, to do that. And they've been relatively successful. They've basically, they enjoy aged care medicine. They enjoy GP geriatrics. So they just went to a nursing home and say, hey, look, I don't live too far away from here. And I want to look after residents uh, if you, you know, want a GP to service your nursing home, I'm more than happy to do it. Now, nursing home medicine is very unique. It's very, very noble. It pays really well. Families can be really annoying. And in this particular case, the GP doesn't have a clinic. So basically, they're getting 100% of their billings. So basically, they work less for the same amount of money. So it's a win-win situation, provided you're the right GP for that particular job. Think about leave entitlements. Usually for independent contractors, you're responsible for your own leave and superannuation. So in the contract, be sure to check if there are minimum notice periods for leave. Um, If you're engaged as an employer, then definitely check with Fair Work on what leave entitlements you may be getting or should be getting as a minimum. Usually, I think it's about two to four weeks per year. Super, sick leave, annual leave entitlements, I think are an important part of any contract. So be very meticulous, be very clear, be very fair. And understand it well and understand you'll know, know that you're, you have rights as well as an independent contractor or as an employee. 
Number eight is your practice room. Oh, when I was in private practice, which was ages ago, um, nothing would make me upset more than some other doctors using my room. Nowadays, I'm more used to using shared spaces because I'm only working public hospital settings. So, you know, you don't have your own room when you work in the emergency. But I think it's reasonable to ask if you get your own room or you'll be sharing your room. Now, most GP practices, you're going to be sharing a room with another GP, depending on whether you're working full time or part time, etc. But when I was in private practice, one of the things that used to really annoy me is that I'd rock up and I'd be like, you know, working four days a week. And then I'd be using room one, which would be my room, for example. And then the practice manager would be like, oh, you know, Dev, today we're going to swap you. We're going to swap you to room three. I'm like, why? Oh, because we've got a new doctor and your room suits them better. I'm like, what? I've been here for like X amount of years and you're telling me a new doctor gets a new room or better room, I guess, in a way, or my room, which has clearly been set up for me and, you know, the workspace and the efficiencies that I've, you know, I'm just used to it. And that would just really, really, really annoy me. So I think it's reasonable to ask if you get your own room or you'll be sharing. And if you're a practice owner, don't piss off the GP because it's the GP that's making you the money. So if you're a practice owner, make sure you provide the GP with all the equipment, all the space, and make sure they have some ownership over that space. Um, you know, for me, you know, being a doctor or being a GP is all about income per unit time. Nothing is more annoying than having inefficient room setups, printers, computers, chairs, beds, whatever. Everything was set up for me. Everything was set up for Devraga and basically was just given away every now and again to some random other doctor who came in. I'm like, what? That's unfair. And you've got to ask them, can you personalize your room? And if so, if you specialize in pediatrics, for example, in general practice, your room may appear more colorful, more lighter have more toys or cartoons on the wall, etc. Number nine is restrictions of trade clause. Now, this is important. I have talked about it in the practice ownership and equity purchase section of this episode, which is before the ad. Basically, it could talk about what are the restrictions. Is there a radius clause? Usually there are three to 10 kilometer radius clause where you can't practice. You've got to seek legal opinion if that is actually enforceable. Doesn't mean you can't practice at all. And can it mean that you can't practice all specialties? So, for example, supposing you work in practice A as a GP and there is a trade clause restriction of five kilometres, but you also work in practice B, but in this practice you only do skin checks, biopsies as you work as a GP skin specialist, is that okay? Check the fine print. Number 10 is intellectual property. Some clinics are so efficient, they run it like a machine. They provide amazing care because they've set up systems and processes to make sure that happens well. So you may be bound by intellectual property clauses so you can't steal their secret source. So you got to be careful about that. And that's about it for contract negotiation or renegotiation as a medical GP. But I suppose a lot of these concepts apply to most contract negotiations. Here's my overall statement. A contract just offers protections for the practice owner, and for the employee or the independent contractor. So be sensible about it. Check it with a lawyer if you want to, or your medical defense organization. A lot of people don't know that their MDO actually offer contract checks. At the end of the day, there is an element of trust involved. If your employer, practice owner, or boss is super focused on the contract and not you, then that might be a red flag. And remember, always Google everyone in the practice. 
I once Googled a doctor in the practice and found out they had an APRA restriction on their clinical practice. Do you want to be associated with a practice who is another doctor who has an APRA restriction? Now, it depends on the restriction. In this particular case, the restriction was quite severe. It depends on your thoughts and it depends on your preference. More information is good. I hope this clarifies contract negotiations, renewals, and Joe, good luck with it. That's about it for this episode. So two very good questions, one from Campbell about practice ownership, equity purchase, and the second one from Joe about GP contract negotiation. Um, so thanks very much for listening. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using. Why don't you just leave a five-star review and rating on all of the platforms? That's even better. And please leave a positive review. I really read every single reviews, so I really enjoy it. And if there's any feedback, um, you know, feel free to contact me directly. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast, so please keep them coming. This is Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Medical, and until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.